Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In each episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing what public scholarship means to us as readers, podcasters, and lifelong learners. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Doesn't it feel like forever since we've recorded a regular episode? It has been forever. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really excited to be kicking off this new season. Me too. I have never felt so excited for a school year that I wasn't participating in. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm not in school. I'm not teaching in a classroom. Um, My toddler isn't in school yet. And yet, I'm so excited for this school year. (laughs) Me too. It feels very fitting that um, it's a little overcast and cooler here today. I don't know what it's like where you are. It's been 100 degrees here all week. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, (laughs) I just, I really feel like it's perfect for our first recording of our new fall semester. All right. Well, I'll pretend that that's (laughs) that's how it is. Channel your sweater weather energy. Yes. (laughs) Sarah, in this new season, we have kind of a, it's not a departure from our regular episodes. We are doing something that is a culmination of our TBR topplers, our conversations that we've had both on the podcast and on Patreon. We are calling this episode a modern readers episode um, where we are focusing on a literary topic and we're talking about it. Um, We'll go through a little bit more about modern readers and these episodes actually in the the bulk of what we're talking about because we're talking about public scholarship today. Um, But before we get into all of that, Sarah, I would love to hear about one of your recent reads. All right. So I, of course, had a lot of books that I could bring as a recent read today because I've been reading a ton. But the, the read that I actually keep really thinking about lately is a Substack post I read recently. Do you subscribe to Brandon Taylor's Substack newsletter? I don't. And I don't know why, because I often read it from like other people sharing it. <laughs> yeah. So, it's so widely I don't shared. think I've read it's, this one though. You know, it. this one is, it's, it's great. So it's the title of this article is Necessary Scenes. And I... First of all, I love Brandon Taylor and I think that he has he came out with a new book earlier this year. I have not read it yet. I'm excited to. But he was kind of involved in some like back and forth and tussles with some reviewers who who basically talked about how funny and charming he is in his newsletter and why doesn't he write like that in his books? And he's he trying he's trying to be too serious in his books and all of this stuff and 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 because he has this newsletter he like pretty like upfrontly comments on those things which I think first of all is very interesting but this most recent 
newsletter I had somehow missed. And then somebody commented on my Substack newsletter about reading long books and said, oh, you have to check out Brandon Taylor's most recent newsletter. So of course I did. And he writes in this post about the idea of necessary scenes and what is considered necessary in a piece of art versus what's considered gratuitous. And it was really eye-opening to me because I've definitely called things gratuitous before. I have definitely expressed a maybe preference for, or at least an admiration for tighter works of literature where every sentence quote unquote matters, right? Every, every scene is necessary. And he pushes back against that idea in this, this piece, and not just in the sense that not all scenes need to be necessary or that, that maybe what you think isn't necessary is necessary in the artist's view, but also the idea that thinking about what's necessary is almost a shortcut to suggesting that art needs to have like a moral message. And if something isn't contributing to that moral message, then it's not worthy of being part of the art. It's so good and interesting. And I just, I feel like it's going to change the way I read the books that I read (laughs) next. Um, It just really influenced how I've been thinking about what I read. So I I think a lot of our listeners would enjoy his newsletter in general, but particularly this necessary scene. I'm going to have to check that out. I I think you're going to really like it because it actually starts with uh, (laughs) a conversation or, or, you know, his thinking about sex scenes in Mm. art. He doesn't really talk about romance novels, but he, he definitely borrows a lot from thinking about romance novels in the way that people too easily dismiss the idea that sex scenes can't further the plot or further characters, which of course in romance novels, like the best ones are doing those things. So yeah, I I think it'll be a good, a good read for you too. What's your recent read? It's actually an Instagram post. Ooh, fun. Which is ironic because I spent the bulk of summer off of Instagram. (laughs) Um, But here I am bringing an Instagram post as my recent read. Um, And this ties in really perfectly to our conversation today about public scholarship because it is from Jasmine Holmes um, and her Instagram account. And she is a historian focusing on Black stories. And her Instagram account is just a wealth of short and concise public scholarship. Just tons of bites of history. So if you are interested in that at all, um, you need to follow her. But something that I have been loving is um, this series of Instagram posts that she's doing. And it's read this, not that. Um, Sort of talking about replacement or supplement texts in the classroom. And so the one specifically that we'll link to in the show notes today is about to kill a mockingbird. And I think that I have referenced on the podcast before, but because we haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird yet as a selection, um, I have not opined about my very specific um, opinion or mission or um, manifesto that we should not be 
reading To Kill a Mockingbird anymore in high school classrooms, or if we're going to read it because it is such an iconic piece of literature, we had better be supplementing it with a ton of works, um, or not a ton, but really um, great works by Black authors. Because um, as Jasmine shares in her post here. Um, She says, sometimes it's not about what we read, but how we are reading it. Um, It's To Kill a Mockingbird is a poignant coming of age story about a young white girl in Alabama. However, um, as a teacher, To Kill a Mockingbird was often the only book we read that grappled with themes of race, injustice, and inequity. So To Kill a Mockingbird is fine to read in schools. I'm not saying that we shouldn't read it at all, but it is often the only book on the curriculum that is even brushing past issues of race and social justice and civil rights and the history of the American South. So she offers suggestions, pairings, if you will, um, for what to read instead or in addition to, which I like. She says it's in the graphic on the post. It says, read this, not that. And in parentheses under not, it says, or and. So she is not saying don't read this book, but saying we should be supplementing it. So Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry is one of them, which we read for the podcast last spring. Um, And she also includes why in these posts. So this is, like I said, this is just a really good example of public scholarship, which is what we're going to dig into today. Another book is Walter Dean Meyer's Monster, um, The Hate You Give, or March, or Dear Martin. Um, Really excellent book recommendations here for varying age levels. But I just, I really loved how succinct and to the point this this post was. It articulates just like her historical knowledge and literary knowledge so beautifully and also this opinion that I've been trying to get across to English teachers for a while. And it's it's just fabulous. It's a really good example of clear and accessible public scholarship. So this is just a, an Instagram post that we'll link to. It's read this, not that from Jasmine Holmes. We were on similar wavelengths today with our recent reads. And this segment is something that, that I'm Chelsea and I are excited about because we just like bringing whatever we've been reading, watching, listening to, thinking about recently and haven't really had a place to, to do that conveniently. But for our kickoff with this modern readers episode, we clearly were thinking on theme because yeah. we are excited to, to talk about public scholarship. It's something that we've been talking about off mic for so long and we've let can trickle into our Patreon community. And now we're really going to dig into defining what we mean by public scholarship, both broadly and here on the podcast for this semester and beyond. All right, Sarah, let's start with the all-important definitions. Let's define public scholarship. So uh, this is basically just taking research content and language of academia and translating it for a broader audience. 
This is incredibly important in fields like science and technology, where certain academic findings and research findings can have a direct impact on people's health um, and their daily lives. And of course, we're not scientists, but we would argue that it is still essential in a different way for the humanities. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. So just a broad example of this might be a professor who is writing an op-ed for the New York Times or um, an academic who is publishing a more mainstream book with a traditional press or a scholar who is going on a podcast to discuss their work with a broader audience. Um, Do you want to add anything to this definition, Sarah? Maybe this is it's helpful to understand public scholarship too, like in contrast to traditional scholarship, because mm-hmm. I I think all of this seems so like why, of course, like of course academics are doing that and should be doing that, but that actually is fairly newer for <laughs> academics to be reaching for those things or valuing writing op-eds or valuing going on podcasts because I, in traditional academic world, worlds, it's really been more that academics are writing for each other. They're publishing articles that go in academic journals or that are published by academic presses and then maybe read by other scholars. And if they're very lucky, maybe used as texts for classes, but it doesn't go beyond this very insular Sphere. And there's even, I mean, academics even joke about how they labor over these articles and three people read them. And that's just kind of seen <laughs> as how things are for many of them. And 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 because of that, I think the the narrowing of many academics' focus has occurred where you know, they're building on each other's knowledge and poking holes in each other's argument and the level of, not the level of thinking decreases, but just the level of scope of what people are writing and talking about gets smaller and smaller. So instead of even writing articles about a single book, it's writing articles about a single sentence in a single book. Um, And so things are just, they're very, very insular in the academic world. And this push for public scholarship, I think, comes about from in many ways, like (laughs) self-preservation, like Mm. um, the world of academia trying to maintain its relevance and show like, hey, here's what we're doing in here. (laughs) But also, I think from a spirit of generosity as well, when it's done best, like, okay, I've gotten the opportunity to do all of this learning and all of this thinking, and I want to share it beyond just the people who are in this inner circle or just the people who can afford both financially in terms of time to take the number of years it takes to study these things. So that public-facing scholarship, I think, is newer and is really wonderful to see. But I also, and we'll include some of these articles in our show notes, have definitely seen academics like warning other academics about the pitfalls of public scholarship. Like, oh, people won't read your work as closely as other academics will, or people can use your words against you. So I think there's also this a little bit of fear, but 
I think for the most part, people in the world of academia see public scholarship as a really good and necessary thing. I think in the age of misinformation, the age of information and misinformation, this has become increasingly important because um, often we need academics who are experts in their field to set the record straight for the public. But if they aren't interacting with the public and they're seen as locked away in the ivory tower and they're only interacting with each other and they're the, like, quote, elite people of society, right, there is this huge mistrust. And we have seen over the last several years where that leads. Um, And so I think that has been a huge uh, shift in the importance of public scholarship. But I can also see where that creates the fear around putting out your work as an academic because the internet is a scary place and um, it's not as cozy as your academic communities. So um, I think so much of it just has to do with the modes of information and the ways we disseminate it. Whereas like these used to be published physical journals that academics Mm -hmm. would publish in, but now everything is available online. Um, so I think there's a huge, huge part of that. I also think another part of the rise in public scholarship is how hard it is to get a job in academia. Mm -hmm. And people who have advanced degrees, thinking about, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? And even if it's as a hobby or something extra or something that they're doing as their full-time career, I think there is that sense of, of there being just fewer options in the academic world, fewer spots for people who are graduating with these degrees. So you see people with this amazing wealth of knowledge turning to things like starting podcasts or writing newsletters. And and I I think that that is really exciting. It really is sad for people who've wanted this career in academia and it's just so hard, but there is so much room for, for all of that thinking beyond the ivory tower. All right. Well, speaking of jobs in academia, I think uh, it's only fair that we share a little bit of our academic backgrounds as we are basically positioning ourselves as public scholars. Um, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with that position, not because I um, have imposter syndrome. I know that I have studied a lot and am a good teacher. Like I know those things, but I think there's this easy assumption that like I know everything about literature and that's so far from the truth. It's so much more about like I know how to read and I know where to get the information and that is my expertise. Often in our community, we are learning alongside our Patreon community, learning learning alongside our listeners at each other. And so while we are kind of positioning ourselves as public scholars here, I just want to make sure everyone knows like that means we're all public scholars. We are not the public scholars disseminating the information. We are considering our entire community, our listenership. We are all public scholars as part of this endeavor. Yeah. And I think that is what scholarship is now. Like, like you said, we live in an information age. There is, this is something I used to think about with my students all the time. Like there's, there's really no point in, in, having 
students, not no point, there's very little point though in having students memorize a whole slew of details about literary history, for example, because they're always going to be able to look those things up. So instead, it's like, what can we use that brain space for? How do we teach students to access that? So that's, I agree, that's kind of how, how I think of um, us and our our community. And I, I think we both just really <laughs> see ourselves as lifelong learners and lifelong teachers. And that's kind of what we are are doing here. But we do have so, degrees. <laughs> yes. So so let's talk a little bit about our history with traditional academia, our education, no paths, and then how we arrived at this public scholarship mission. I think that our undergrad and grad experiences were kind of like flip-flopped. Um, so I studied – my undergrad degree is – secondary education and communication arts and literature. And then my graduate degree is um, literature and composition. And I think that's the flip for you. You were an undergrad English major, right, Sarah? I was an undergrad English major and I actually have two masters. One is in education and then I have a second one in um literary and cultural studies is I think literature and cultural studies is what they call it at the, at my university. Um, so yeah, but yeah, I was not on an education path prior to grad school during my undergrad. So we have studied a lot of the same things, but in different orders and at different schools. And so, um, I think often when you listen to the podcast, it's like, oh yeah, like they kind of, um, that jives. Like it sounds like they went to the same school together, but it's really just more we we absorbed some similar um, lessons about how to teach and how to read. Um, so my undergrad program in secondary education and communication arts and literature, which I know I could just say in English, but it was very specifically <laughs> communication arts and literature. I was um, I was in a lot of communications classes. I took some film and studio production classes, public speaking, and I actually think that a lot of those communication classes shaped the way I taught English and obviously like now I'm podcasting. So um, I use those a lot. So there was a big emphasis on communication in, in my program and the big emphasis in my secondary education classes on reading was critical theory and how to bring that to the classroom. And so that already is like opening the door to public scholarship because critical theory was previously something that was just in academia. So these are things like feminist theory, psychoanalytic theory. We talk about these all the time on our classic books episodes. Um, But all of a lot of my classes were about how to bring that into the classroom for teenagers and how to use that for critical thinking um, and viewing the world. So that already feels like engaging in public scholarship. Um, and then my master's degree, unfortunately, was all online. I say unfortunately because I didn't love being an online learner. Um, I like being in the classroom and discussing. And we didn't have the opportunity for a lot of like seminar. Um, But it is a degree in literature and composition. So I had a lot of like rhetoric classes and writing classes, creative writing classes, literary history, all sorts of those things. 
So then I taught high school and I also taught a little bit as an adjunct professor. And now we're here. So what about you, Sarah? My, well, like you said, my, my undergrad was very, it was, I was an English major and there wasn't any additional like component. It was a very, I I guess I would say traditional, um, English major track. And there really was like very little, I went to a small liberal arts school. There was very little focus on like, what are you going to do after this? (laughs) How are you going to use these skills beyond this classroom? And I loved that. And I feel very lucky that I got to do that because I, I really enjoyed the like cloistered sort of feel of those courses. And then after I graduated, I did some like some writing jobs, some various kind of intern editorial internship sort of things, and really sort of stumbled into teaching because of a woman I met who wanted me to nanny for her kids and then kind of got me into this teacher training program that operates through the private school systems here in in Denver. And doing that, I earned my master's in educational psychology, which isn't really psychology at all, but it is about brain development and child development and basically developmentally appropriate teaching, like shaping your curriculum for where the child's brain is developmentally. And I really enjoyed that. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep teaching or wanted to go into that real academic path. And so I ended up applying for grad programs. And the grad program I ended up going to, I chose because it was a terminal master's program. Georgetown doesn't have a a, an English PhD. And so they give more funding to their master's students than anyone else. <laughs> so that's where, where I went. And my, my funding was through what's called the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown. So I had this really cool job, which was basically helping students who were PhD candidates and the professors at Georgetown themselves learn to be better teachers because professors don't get education classes. They are just expected to be experts in their field and then teach that. And the whole philosophy at CANDLES, which was the acronym for the center, (laughs) um, was that actually like the further you get in your expertise, the more you forget what you know. And, And you have to kind of be reminded about some of that foundational stuff that you learned along the way, and then how to disseminate that information effectively and keep an engaged classroom. So it was really cool to see that side of a university where these professors themselves were like lifelong learners. And this was all uh, voluntary. No professor had to do this. And so, of course, the ones who came to us were already the ones who were interested in being really good teachers. (laughs) Um, But they would come and they'd be, you know, they were these brilliant people who were like, but how do I, you know, keep a, a room of young adults engaged for 90 minutes? And so it was really fun to do to do that kind of work. And because 
there was no PhD component of the English program at Georgetown. They really talked to us a lot about public scholarship and other ways to use our master's degrees. Of course, many people did go on and applied for PhD programs and did those elsewhere, but um, they really valued public scholarship. And and that was the first place that I kind of started, not, not even thinking that that was something I wanted to do, but just being aware that that was something that was seen as valuable by an institution that I really admired. So that's where I really learned about public scholarship and feel like we, like, it took me a long time to circle back to realizing like, oh, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah. We really didn't start using the term until maybe, maybe it was like a year ago, maybe not even. I think when we launched last fall, and we kind of had like the novel pairings university idea. And um, like, I think it started to trickle in then, but like, that's what we've been doing the whole time. So we're talking about it like it's something new <laughs> in this podcast episode today. But like, this is just, this is where we've always been. It's just some terminology that really like cemented our mission for the show. Um, and it's just something we're so passionate about as like you have said, Sarah, lifelong learners. Um, like that's really how we view ourselves. And we know that that's the kind of listener that gravitates towards this podcast. We're really passionate about that. I'm I'm so glad that you got to go into detail about your experience with teaching pedagogy, Sarah, because I think that that is something really special that we bring to this space is our experience in creating entertaining education. Um, but also that is something that I think every single college and university is really going to have to lean on with the attention economy, the way that it is. And with young students coming in and it's totally different. But these days, it really is difficult. It is really tricky to teach a 90-minute class. It's a lot easier to record an hour-long podcast when you have a good co-teacher. <laughs> so I'm glad, <laughs> glad we found each other, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that is something else that's really fun and special about public scholarship is it's not as isolating. And even though neither you nor I went into the academia route, we all, and by we all, I mean you listeners as well, have the experience of writing for, in isolation for a singular audience because we've all been students. And that experience of just like trying to by yourself, you know, create this innovative, interesting argument and you work so hard and then you present it to one reader who is your teacher and that's it. That's as far as it goes. It is so special now to like do this in collaboration and get to share our thinking much more widely and, and broadly. Um, one of the other kind of avenues for me that helped me start thinking about novel pairings as public scholarship was what, what was formerly called the American girls podcast and is now called dolls of our lives, which is a great name. <laughs> I think they got in trouble for calling it the American Girls Podcast. Oh, that makes but, sense. Yeah. But it's two, two women with master's degrees in history who are bringing their historical 
a scholarship and lens and framework to talking about the American Girl dolls and those books in that series. And they're very upfront about that what they're doing is public scholarship. And I think that helped me too, because it made me see how fun public scholarship could be. And you might not have imposter syndrome, which I'm really glad about. <laughs> I mean, but sometimes, I think, not today. <laughs> good. I think there's something in the back of my brain that's still kind of like, well, you don't have a PhD. You don't have yeah. a PhD. And seeing these two podcasters just like use their inc- like incredible wealth of skills and knowledge from obtaining their master's and just being like critical thinkers to this podcast made me be like, okay, anyone can engage in public scholarship. You don't have to have those three letters at the end of your name to be a public scholar. And that's also why I love what you said about us being a community of public scholars rather than experts disseminating knowledge. I love that. It's like, I don't know. It's We often hear from listeners describing our podcast as cozy. And there is something really cozy about academia. Um, we, When we were doing our rebranding, um, our designer that we were working with called our aesthetic light academia instead of dark academia. <laughs> yes. And we were like, I think that helped us figure out where our niche was in public scholarship too. We were like, yeah, academia doesn't have to be dark and broody and um, like walled in. Like it can be open and friendly and warm and engaging. Um, And so we've had many conversations about public scholarship on the podcast. And so it is a little tricky to try and summarize all of those here. But mostly what we're saying is you're going to hear us reference public scholarship more often. Um, And we hope that it makes you as excited as it makes us. And just always remember that when we're talking about public scholarship, we're talking about you being a public scholar too, because we don't know everything. (laughs) Often my imposter syndrome, Sarah, comes from like when we're reading a text. So especially these, like I have not read very much Wolf and I would say postmodernism is, it's not a gap, but I had significantly fewer classes on more of the modern classics. Um, So postmodernism is like an area I'm not as familiar with. So I have to do more reading to when we're going to be teaching about it. Um, Anyway, I just share that to say like, that's where my imposter syndrome comes in where I'm like, I didn't, I don't know all of this stuff. I think people expect me to have read every classic and I haven't. Yeah. So, so when we approach public scholarship on, on our show, a lot of that means that we are doing a lot of learning ourselves, doing a lot of research, and trying to bring that to the podcast and our Patreon episodes and our Patreon classes in a very approachable, fun, only the good stuff kind of way. So that's one thing we're doing, whether it's through our bonus podcast episodes where we are talking about author biography or literary movements or whether it's our classes where we are defining and exploring literary lenses with each other or whether it's our main feed episodes where we're really deep diving into a classic text like we're going to do this month with Rebecca. The other thing I think we're trying to do as public scholars is bring 
the framework we use and the language and the lenses that we used in the classroom to discuss classic texts to other avenues of reading in our lives. So whether that's talking about more contemporary books, but through that academic lens, or whether it's talking about patterns we're noticing in the book publishing world and the literary landscape, kind of stringing these things together, looking at things with a broad view and simultaneously going deep. That's the kind of scholarship we want to be doing on the podcast is not just like, here's information, but here's how we as two really nerdy readers who studied English and taught English, here's how we read. And we invite you to read along with us in this way or roll your eyes at us for reading that deeply into anything (laughs) (laughs) or however you want to approach it in your reading life, but kind of bringing and modeling that type of reading and thinking in this public space. An English teacher will always find a metaphor and we're not going to apologize for it. Exactly. So on the main feed of the podcast now, you can expect at least two episodes a month. And one of those episodes will be our traditional classic books conversations where we deep dive into a classic and then offer contemporary books as pairings. And then you'll also get these modern reader episodes once a month where we take that broader view, look more at the literary landscape or a contemporary book, apply those English teachery vibes to something that is not a classic work of literature. So we're excited. We've been doing that on Patreon since we launched Patreon. And we're excited to bring more of that to the main feed because it's something we really enjoy and we hear from our patrons that they really value as well. You can still expect TBR toppling book lists because along with these episodes, often we'll have book recommendations on a theme. You can expect more short story club, which is another way that we want to offer this public scholarship in a really accessible format for you. And you can also expect our seasonal preview episodes. So yeah, we we want to offer a wide variety, but this modern reader focus is really sparking our creativity in a fun way. And we hope that you can get excited about this with us. All right. So we promised book recommendations yeah. still. So <laughs> we And we have books and beyond today. We're going to share some further reading for public literature scholars. Chelsea, what were some of the first things you thought about for, for places for readers to go? for more public scholars. I have three recommendations that I'll just throw out really quickly. If you're interested in public scholarship around literature, I think there are three easy and quick ways for you to go um, that aren't just internet searches. I think it's nice to have a physical book that you can read and that you can reference. Um, First is the very short introduction series And these are very short. They have so many of these, and we'll start including some links to them 
in our episodes a little more often. So like when we're talking about postmodern literature, we'll link to the very short introduction to postmodern literature if you want further reading. I think the one that I would recommend, especially if you like the whole vibe we've got going on novel pairings, is a very short introduction to critical theory. So I think that is a great way for you to feel like a public scholar. Um, I think when you're reading the classics, we sometimes recommend a specific edition. Um, So like when we read the Odyssey, we were very specific about we're reading the Emily Wilson translation. Often we just want you to be able to read whatever edition you have available to you, whether that is the library, something from your own shelf or um, a used bookstore copy. We just, we want that to be accessible, but often we get questions from people who are like, I really want to get nerdy with this read. What editions do you recommend? Often we recommend the Norton Critical Editions um, just because of their scope. These are often used in the classroom as textbook copies, but they don't read like textbooks. They have lots of footnotes. They have lots of essay content. So those are great. And then the third real quick recommendation I'll throw out is the literature book from DK. Do you remember DK books from when you were a kid, Sarah? Yes. And Louise has a She doesn't have this, but she has a bunch of DK books. They're awesome. Yeah. We loved DK as kids. Like these, they had really great search and find books, really great informational books, and they're still around and they're still doing public scholarship. Um, So the literature book from DK is a fantastic overview of literary movements, literary history, core pieces of literature, and it's told in a really friendly format um, with colorful illustrations, graphics, and infographics. So I think that's a really great kind of coffee table book that you can use as a public scholar. So those are three that are in the realm of like very scholarly, but we have some more some broader recommendations as well. Now I want that literature book from DK. I totally ordered it (laughs) for myself. Looks great. One that this one's been around for so long, How to Read Literature Like a Professor by Thomas Foster. And it has been revised like a bajillion times since constantly getting, getting revised. And I real, I think this one's really fun and accessible it is one of those things that I always feel like, okay, but but take everything with a grain of salt, right? You don't have to do exactly what he says, even though it's a how-to book. Just take what serves you and leave what doesn't. But it might give – it gives, I think, some fun things to try in one's reading life in order to look more closely at language, metaphor, all of those literary devices you learn about and then forget about in school. One that I have talked about a lot is Craft in the Real World by Matthew Selesis. This He is a an author and a writing professor, and he breaks down some of his craft lessons in this book, but also has a broader scope in terms of thinking about what makes something well done in a piece of writing and how to shake our traditional notions of that. I also think Marianne Wolf is doing amazing public scholarship with her books, Proust and the Squid and Reader Come Home. And then one that I forgot about until just now, George Saunders' book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, is a fantastic example of public scholarship because 
he is taking his class that he teaches on the Russian masters and their short stories and translating it into book form. And it was published by Random House, I think, so broad appeal. But he really has distilled that class, those lessons, into something that's very engaging and approachable for any reader. I think as a literature scholar, you can never read too much history scholarship. I almost became a history teacher many times. Like in college, I constantly thought about changing my major to history because most of what I loved from my literature classes and what I loved the idea of teaching was the historical context. When I was in the English classroom and teaching, I loved teaching history. So um, this is maybe just personal bias, but I really think, especially if you're reading the classics and you are looking for historical context, you just can't read enough history. And of course you can get that from Wikipedia, from Britannica, from um, all sorts of online resources. Um, But I really love historical scholarship in beautiful storytelling. I think The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson is probably the, the best prime example of that. And I have to say, we've read a good bit of Harlem Renaissance literature for the podcast, and I'm so glad I read The Warmth of Other Suns prior because my understanding of those books just like illuminated tenfold from Isabel Wilkerson's work. So historical books like that one, I think are a great avenue for public scholarship as well. One of my favorites in that vein is These Truths by Jill Lepore. And that's like a full history of the United States. And one of the things I really enjoy that she talks about in her introduction is how little is being done in terms of broad views of history in academia right now because like we talked about this narrowing of scope which is so important i mean the warmth of other suns is that i mean it covers many decades as well but it's looking at one time period one um one kind of guiding question which is necessary and then also it's interesting to look at the whole scope so that back and forth that balance I also, I had meant to talk about this earlier when we were talking about our experience with public scholarship. And since you mentioned Wikipedia, I'm just going to throw this out here really quickly. I TA'd for a class once that the final assignment was writing a Wikipedia entry for a piece of art that didn't have a Wikipedia entry already. And the professor decided to do that instead of have their students write a paper because it is public scholarship. It's taking everything they learned in the class and making it available for the public. It helps students learn how to write for for a broader audience. I thought that was such a good assignment. And you could like modernize it a little bit more now by having students write a Substack newsletter about something that they've studied in in the class. So there are lots of really cool ways to help your students become public scholars, regardless of what grade level you teach. Okay. We'll talk about Substack in a second, but I just want to talk about Wikipedia for a real quick minute, Sarah, because (laughs) (laughs) I think that we got the same or a similar message in school 
about Wikipedia that we did with SparkNotes. And one of the, uh, we didn't hear a ton, but like at least six people in our survey that we gave about the podcast said that one thing they learned from us is that it is okay to use SparkNotes. And that made us so happy. (laughs) So I am here to tell you today that it is also okay to use Wikipedia. The reason that your teachers did not want you using Wikipedia is because it's not considered an academic source that you can use in academic writing. It's not a source that you would want to cite because it has the ability to change. So you could cite something and then someone could go edit it and change it. But that doesn't mean that it is as an entire website unusable or bad or misinformation. There are people who volunteer and who work on Wikipedia that are constantly working to update information and fact check. Um, And so when you are just engaging in your public scholarship and you're like, I'm reading this book and I don't know anything about this war, use Wikipedia. It's like one of the friendliest, just most user-friendly, quick hit kind of websites and I am okay with saying, go ahead and use it as a reader, not a student. (laughs) Agreed. I love Wikipedia. All right. Let's talk about Substack as a place for public scholarship because this, I mean, I think it is a fantastic platform for this. We have a newsletter on Substack. We've brought a wonderful additional reader and librarian Katie on to help us with the newsletter. And she has made it a even friendlier, nerdier space than ever. And so our newsletter is a great place to go for even more public scholarship. That's book lists or library deep dives, or um, she shares pieces of art that correspond with the episodes we're releasing that day. It is, it is awesome. But we're not the only people doing public scholarship on Substack. I already mentioned Brandon Taylor's newsletter. Rebecca Mackay has one where she really kind of teaches writing through her, her Substack. And then two that aren't literary, but I think are really, they're doing close reading, these two newsletters, just a close reading about different types of texts than we typically do are Anne Helen Peterson's Culture Study and Elizabeth Holmes's So Many Thoughts. So Anne Helen Peterson, she looks at really pop culture and trends. So just this past week or so, she's been close reading Rush Talk, which is sorority girls doing their... (laughs) rush week and posting about it on TikTok, she's close reading those and examining what it says about our cultural moment. Elizabeth Holmes close reads royal fashion. And what do the clothes that the royals are wearing say about what they're trying to communicate to the public about themselves, their their goals, their priorities, et cetera. And I think those two are really fun follows and honestly, I think help me with my own close reading skills, even though they're doing something completely different. Sarah, I think that your Fiction Matters newsletter is totally public scholarship. You have a reading in public series where you are reflecting on your reading life and really reading with a public scholar lens. So I think people should go and 
check that out as well. Substack is awesome. It really is. It's fun. And if you have avoided Substack in the past because you're like, I don't want to get emails to my inbox, they have a really nice app. And it's not an app that you're going to get addicted to scrolling like Instagram. It's just like an easy reading. Think of it more like a news app on your phone. Um, It is lovely and nerdy. And I am really loving that space. So, All right. Well, our first modern readers episode. Sarah, we should do a modern readers episode on close reading. <laughs> As you were talking about close reading, I was like, oh, we need to do a modern readers episode on that. We should. We have too many ideas. Which is There's a good no such thing. thing as too many ideas. It's, good. it's it really has sparked our creativity. Thinking of having an, another, not even format, but just Another framework for how we can talk about books on the podcast has really, I think, brought us brought us to life. And having this space to talk about the larger literary landscape makes me more excited to have our classic books episodes too as our place to get really nerdy in that classic way. Yeah. I think they'll be in conversation with each other really beautifully. Well, We might not be anywhere close to NPR or PBS, but regardless (laughs) of our size, you, dear listeners, fund our educational programming here at Novel Pairings, and we're so, so grateful. So here is how you can support our independent podcast and our mission to make literary academia accessible. There are a couple of really easy, free ways to support us. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We always appreciate those. You can share the show with a friend or on social media. That always helps us. You can subscribe to our free weekly Substack newsletter. You can go to novelpairings.substack.com. And if you would like to fund our show, you can become a member of our Patreon community starting at just $5 a month. We have annual subscriptions as well that you get a 10% discount on. So that's always an option. Um, And we would also love for you to consider joining our novel pairings producers to generously fund the show and keep it ad free. We just can't wait to jump into more public scholarship with all of you this season. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with our fall book preview and backlist pairings. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.